Well, good morning, everyone. How many times have you ever told your child or grandchild something about your childhood that was almost true? Uh, You remember. Son, back when I was a kid, I used to walk three miles to school every day in the snow. Or, son, back when I was a young'un, people were friendly, but now you can't trust anybody. Right? Or, son, you think mowing our yard is hard. I had to rake garbage cans full of acorns before we mowed the yard, right? Well, back when I was a kid, one of my favorite things to do was to go to my grandmother's house. On those days when school's over, instead of getting on bus 61, I got on bus 56 because that's the bus that dropped us off in front of her house. I would get off the bus, I would run down the driveway and run around to the back of her house and up the stairs. And I remember my grandmother always greeted us personally and by name it didn't matter where we were she always greeted us Stephen she never greeted us by our nickname she never greeted us by son or or anything she always greeted us by our name the only problem was half the time she greeted us by their name she called the roll because there were five of us and so she would say well hello Patrick Charlie Andy I mean Stephen and then she would giggle and laugh and we would all laugh together We used to rotate Friday night sleepovers, and she never had us come over together. She always asked us to come over by ourselves. And she always treated us like we were the only grandchild she had. I remember my favorite Friday night meal at my grandmother's. Chicken casserole, green beans, a dinner roll, and homemade blackberry cobbler. Texas version, chicken fried steak green beans, a dinner roll, and homemade blackberry cobbler. (laughs) But after dinner, she would escort us into her smallish but cozy den in the middle of her house, and she would quickly clean up the dishes before she then came in to sit with us. She would always turn on the TV to something like Scooby-Doo or Andy Griffith or I Love Lucy. She did this while she was cleaning up the dishes, but then when she arrived, she would change the channel. She would change the channel to Billy Graham and James Robinson. And given the TV selection, you might conclude how she always seemed to turn the conversation to spiritual things. But for me, I never remember her initiating the conversation. It was always me who initiated and asked the questions. What a great way to talk to your grandchildren about Jesus. Turn the TV on Billy Graham and wait for questions. I remember in those days, in those conversations, we talked about all kinds of topics. And frankly, she had some views about angels and demons, for example, that would send me to bed that Friday night wishing I had a bed buddy next to me. (laughs) She often, though, exhorted me in one particular area. She often resorted me to be current or be fessed up, so to speak as it relates to sin. Uh, She would always say, don't wait. Go to God and ask him to forgive you the moment that you've sinned. And now I know there's some theology out there that says that somehow we have to be prayed up and fessed up in order to get into heaven. And that's not where my grandmother was going because she relied on the blood of Christ to forgive me of my sins and her of her sins And you of your sins, past, present, and future. 
However, Grandma did teach me the importance of having a clean conscience before God. And I learned over time that to have a clean conscience and experience peace, which fueled the joy I had when I first came to salvation, confession was a big part of that. In his book, Peace with God, Billy Graham writes, You started on the great quest the moment you were born. It was perhaps many years before you realized it, before it became apparent that you were constantly searching. Searching for something you never had. Searching for something that was more important than anything in life. Why did my grandma teach me about confession? She knew peace with God. And today, as we look at Psalm 51, we're going to see that after the most heinous group of sins in David's life, David writes us a treasure that teaches us the value of confession. Today, we're going to see three reasons why confession is such an important part of being a Christian. But before we dive into the text, I want to take just a minute to review the literature of the Psalms and the history of Psalm 51 in particular. As Hebrew poetry, the Psalms are written differently than Western poetry. Since so much of the Bible was memorized before it was printed, much of it was written for memorization. You've seen this in the Psalms, for example, when they're ordered according to the alphabet. The Psalms were also written uh, in order to be put to song. And many of our contemporary Christian songs are uh, today have arisen from the Psalms because they're so easy to put to song. One of the literary styles that makes the Psalms so memorable is parallelism. And another common element of Hebrew poetry and parallelism is called chiasm. Chiasm is a literary device that sequences ideas and sentences in a parallel and reflective manner. Uh, So, for example, when Jesus says, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. He's using a parallel, reflective, chiastic structure. Notice how easy it is to remember the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Right? You can see the parallelism. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. He, makes, he uses a chiastic structure to focus on the central theme and the main point that he was teaching. In a similar way, today, as we look at Psalm 51, we can use this kind of poetic structure because Psalm 51 is written chiastically. Psalm 51 also has a historical underpinning. The heading says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Here's a summary of the story from 2 Samuel 11. It happened late one afternoon. When David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, son of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him. And he laid with her. And then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David... I am pregnant. Well, now we learn after David hears that she's pregnant that he tried to cover up his sin by bringing her husband off the battlefield and asking him to go home for a time so that he could lie with his wife 
as if he had gotten her pregnant. But Uriah, we're told, is a noble man. And he can't come home after battle and go rest at home and lie with his wife while his comrades are still in battle. So out of loyalty to his comrades, Uriah refuses the king's request. And so David arranges for Uriah to be killed in battle so that he himself could quickly marry Bathsheba and cover up his sin. We find later as we read down that the Lord saw it all and sent Nathan the prophet to confront David. Nathan tells David a parable that entices him to pronounce his own condemnation and then reveals that David is the man who did these things and asked, why have you despised the word of the Lord? Nathan then pronounces judgment and David breaks at that point and confesses his sin. The Lord spares David himself, but through God's judgment, David loses the child to sickness. If you have your Bibles, follow along as we begin Psalm 51, 1 through 9, because it is out of this context that David pens Psalm 51. It is out of the context of being confronted by Nathan that David David, uh, pens Psalm 51. Uh, He says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to your greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know that my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part, you make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out my iniquities. The first thing that we're going to see today is that confession petitions the merciful. Notice the parallel structure on the screen for a moment. Uh, What is David crying out for here? What does he need? What is he calling out on God? He's calling out, he's crying out for God's mercy. He's asking God according to his loyal love, his hesed and his compassion to be merciful upon him and forgive him and notice in the structure he's requesting that God blot out his transgressions at the end and at the at the beginning and at the end of these verses Uh, that happens through the cleansing that only God can do and he confesses that he sinned and not only has David sinned specifically in this action but David confesses as well that he is a sinner by nature even from his mother's womb Uh, David's petition for mercy has its basis in the love and compassion of God. You can tell a lot about someone based on how they react when they're confronted with sin. Too often our first reaction when confronted is to deny the deed, blame until we're blue in the face, or run instead of crying out for compassion. 
We often believe that if we deny long and hard enough that the consequence of sin will be forwarded or maybe even lightened. But notice the basis here of David's appeal. It is according to your loving kindness and according to your great compassion. Our resistance to move toward mercy is often based upon fear. It's based upon fear and shame. And so we decide to lie and cover up instead and deny and blame. We decide oftentimes to withdraw and regroup. But David's appeal is based on mercy, not fear. David's appeal to mercy is based on love, and he knows God's hesed. He knows God's loyal love. And so David's appeal to mercy is based upon compassion. And he needs to experience the greatness of God's compassion over again. When we petition God for mercy that is based in his love and not our fear, it places us in a position to heal because we know the one who loves us is the one who can help us. But David's petition for mercy, while having its basis in the love of God, also recognizes something very important about God, that God is just to confront him, that God is just to call out his sin, and that God is justified to judge David's sin. David's specific sins, he says, are every before him. His thoughts comply with what is good and right, and he calls sin, sin. But David also knows something deeper here. He knows that he has offended God, not only because of the specific sin, but because he's a sinner, a sinner by birth and by nature, desperately needing God's intervention. Uh, this structure tells us it is as, as if David is saying, God, you are just and you are right to just, to, uh, and justified in disciplining me. And I've got what's coming to me, Lord, but I've sinned. And not only that, I'm a sinner. But Lord, more than that, more than anything else, I need your forgiveness. I need mercy. I need your compassion and loyal love. Blot out my transgressions. Cleanse me of my sin. Because only you, God, can do that. You see, God has a divine dilemma. God, while being merciful by nature, cannot exercise mercy at the expense of his justice. How is it that God can exercise both mercy and justice at the same time? It's called forgiveness. But forgiveness is costly. And the exercise of God's mercy and justice in forgiveness cost him the life of his one and only son, Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins and rose again to prove the satisfaction of God's justice and the display of God's mercy. It is God's love that bridged the gap between mercy and justice so that he could provide the sacrifice that enabled forgiveness. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. One of the most devastating results of the postmodern era and moral relativism is the creation of a culture that does not 
acknowledge that God is justified when he speaks about sin and blameless when he judges. Relativism attests that truth and morality exist in relation to culture, in relation to society or historical context, and are not absolute. Richard Rorty said, truth is what your contemporaries let you get away with. Tom Robbins said, whether a man is a criminal or a public servant is, is purely a matter of perspective. Ravi Zacharias said, with no fact as referent, what is normative is purely a matter of preference. John Piper said, relativism poses as humble by saying we are not smart enough to know what the truth is or if there is any universal truth at all. It sounds humble, but look carefully at what is happening. It's like a servant saying, I'm not smart enough to know who my master is or that if I even have a master. The result is that I don't have a master and I can be my own master. That is in reality what happens to relativists. In claiming to be too lowly to know the truth, they exalt themselves to be the supreme arbiter of truth. This is not humility. This is the essence of pride, Piper says. But the interpretation of God's word doesn't depend on what the majority of the masses think about it in that day and time. God's word is truth in every culture, no matter whether that culture accepts or rejects it. And so don't buy into relativism. Don't buy into moral relativism. Reject it because God's word is truth. The second thing that David teaches us is that confession purifies our hearts so that we may be an effective witness for God. Notice what David says here. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. Old Testament saints didn't have the Holy Spirit residing in them like we do through the new covenant today. But God gave the king a special dispensation, so to speak, so that he could lead the people and be an effective witness for God. Notice that David asked for something that only God can do. Only God can create a clean heart. Only God can renew a steadfast spirit. Only God can give his Holy Spirit. Only God can restore the joy of salvation. Only God can sustain a willing spirit. Only God can deliver from guilt. But notice what happens when he does. Then David experiences again the joy of salvation and the peace of a clean heart. And then he will teach transgressors and win sinners. Confession purifies our hearts and makes us ready again for effective service to God. The other day, I was changing the outlet in my home and I took the old electrical outlet out and I 
wired the new electrical outlet in and I shoved it back into the outlet box and put everything back together and I went to plug my appliance in and I got nothing. That's about how good of an electrician I am. But I plugged it in the bottom outlet and I got power. It worked just fine. Well, then I went over next door and plugged it into the outlet next door and we got power and it worked just fine. Well, I should be, but I'm not the kind of electrician that uses a voltmeter and so I know that's dangerous but uh, I just took the thing back out and examined it again and I noticed that it wasn't completely hooked up to power properly Uh, it wasn't hooked up in such a way that both outlets would work the one right below it worked fine the one beside it worked fine And finding the reason for that lack of power was a mystery for me. It took me a lot longer than I want to admit. And it was very, very frustrating. But trying to be effective for God while harboring sin and living in the flesh is like trying to get power from an outlet that has no electricity from it. Sin destroys the soul and renders ministry impotent. David knew this intimately, and so he asked God to do what only God can do, restore the joy of his salvation. And so today as we've looked at the psalm, we've seen that confession petitions the merciful. It recognizes God's right to speak into our lives about sin and petitions his mercy and grace. Because justice, because God's justice has been satisfied on the cross, we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Secondly, though, we've seen that confession purifies our hearts and makes us ready to serve for the furtherance of the gospel and the glory of of God's name. But thirdly, we see that confession positions us for heartfelt worship. Now, confession does not make our worship acceptable. Only the blood of Jesus makes our worship acceptable. But verses 16 through 19 help us understand the kind of attitude in worship that pleases God. You see, God desires to bless us as his children. He desires to show his favor upon us. And favor is the result of worship that is pleasing to him. David needed it back then, and so do we today. Listen to this last stanza of Psalm 51. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. It almost seems as if this is contradictory or confusing because on the one hand, David is saying, for you do not delight in sacrifice. And on the other hand, he's saying, but there's going to come a time when you will delight in righteous sacrifices. In the same burnt offerings, Lord, that you don't uh, delight in, you are going to delight in. And that seems confusing and almost contradictory, but there's a few things in the middle of that that are really, really important. It's this line right here. 
The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David could not function as king over Israel without God's favor. He needed God to build his house, lest he labor in vain. But David also knew that God would not be mocked through perfunctory ritual while his own heart was far from God. Isaiah confronted this when he wrote, Because these people draw near to me with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts and are far from me. Jesus said the same thing to the Pharisees and the scribes. Evidently, we humans have an inordinate capacity to segregate our minds to perfunctory ritual and at the same time have hearts that are far from God. We have the capacity to worship on Sunday and live pretty crazy lives Monday through Saturday. And God is not pleased. Instead, God is pleased when our worship comes with a heart attitude that isn't harboring sin. You see, we still worship God through a priest. His name is Jesus. We worship God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son in the work that he has done on the cross applied to our lives by the Holy Spirit. We worship a triune God in a triune way. We worship the Father through the Son by the Spirit. And while we don't offer sacrifices on the altar as David did, we do offer up worship to God. We offer up worship to God made possible because of the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus and his priestly intercession. And so confession positions us for heartfelt worship because it forces us through broken and contrite hearts to remember the sacrifice of Christ and to petition him to purify our hearts and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. First John says it this way, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I don't know where you are today, but maybe today you need to claim that verse. Uh, Maybe today you need to go to God in confession, wherever you are in your relationship with God, and ask for him to restore the joy of your salvation. God can restore you because of Christ's work on the cross and because of his mercy and the sacrifice of Jesus. I'd like to leave us today with four New Testament sacrifices that please God. Uh, Sacrifice number one is written in the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. And it's called the sacrifice of our lips. Through him then, that is through Jesus, the writer says... Let us continually offer up the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. The sacrifice of our life. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. The third sacrifice is the sacrifice of our loot. That is our money, our giving. Sacrifice in Hebrews uh, 13, it says, And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. And the final one is found in John 13, verse 34, and it's the sacrifice of our love. 
Uh, Jesus says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Jesus loved us sacrificially. You know, my grandmother was pretty sharp. My grandmother taught me the importance of confession in the Christian life. And I didn't know all the reasons back then, but I know now that confession is essential to the Christian life. Confession petitions the merciful, merciful God to do what He can only do, show mercy. Confession purifies our hearts and restores our joy so that we can be an effective witness for God. And finally, confession positions us for heartfelt worship and the favor of God because the sacrifices of a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Let us pray. O oh Lord God, today we come to you and we thank you for this psalm. Lord, we thank you for David who, even in the moment, your word says he's a man after your heart, even though he did some heinous things, Lord. And we've all done some heinous things. Lord, in that moment of confrontation, rather than resorting to blame, Lord, David sought mercy. Uh, Lord, rather than withdrawing and denying, David sought compassion and love, the kind of compassion and love that only you give. And so today we thank you for this psalm. We thank you for what it teaches us. And Lord, we thank you that a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart is always acceptable to you. So, Lord, let us offer up our sacrifices. Let us offer up ourselves today in a way that is good and pleasing to you. And use us, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen.